ionization, crystal matrix, vaporize, flight time of molecules bombarded by lasers. I mean, freaking lasers. You might think I'm talking about some 1980s sci-fi movie. But nope, this is actually how our sponsor for the pathology series will be doing your microbiology samples. It's called Malditoff, which sounds a bit like something you set on fire and throw at a building during a revolution, not the pinnacle of diagnostic microbiology, right? There's a video that I'll link to in the show notes, which is just too awesome in itself. But what's even better is the first comment where one user says, I wish the machine actually made those pew pew sounds. <laughs> in all seriousness, if this is the standard of high quality, high tech diagnostics that SPS, which if you've been listening, you'll know by now to be the SVS Pathology Network, composed of Vetnostics in New South Wales, QML in Queensland, TML Vetnostics in Tasmania, ASAP in Victoria, and Vetpath in WA. If this is what they're doing, I reckon your results are still in safe hands. You knew they were good. But this is some next level stuff. It beats the crap out of smearing some gunk out on an agar dish and chucking it in the incubator, or the stinkubator like we used to call it at a previous job of mine and then sitting around for two days while you have to wait for it to grow or not to grow, and then repeating the process again to isolate the bug from all of the other gunk growing on there, and then seeing if you can kill it with those little antibiotic-infused discs. Not with this stuff, though. How Malditoff, which is short for Matrix-Assisted Laser Desorption Ionization Time of Flight Mass Spectrometer, how it works is that your microorganism sample gets fixed on a matrix, and then the little bastards get nuked by a laser, which totally vaporizes it into its basic molecules. So long, f And then the molecules get sucked up in a vacuum tube onto a sensor. But of course, the fat kid molecules will get there long after, like several microseconds later, than the whippity little lightweight ones. And the machine is smart enough to calculate who they've just vaporized by identifying the temporal pattern of the molecules hitting the sensors. Now, if you're getting confused, don't worry, I am too. But did you hear that I said lasers? I swear, the next time I'm sick, I'm sending my own sample for Malditoff just to have the joy of knowing that some of the things making me sick are going to get vaporized. Now, because this process only needs a tiny sample to identify unknown molecules, it means that the guys at SVS can eliminate the purification stage where you have to re-smear those samples to isolate the different bugs. What all of this means is faster results, better decisions for your patients, and happier clients. Our guest for this episode is SVS pathologist, Dr. Kristen Todd Hunter, who admits that she has a little bit of a soft spot for all things microbiology. And our topic is urine. For such a seemingly simple sample, there's actually a lot of uncertainty around much of the sample handling and interpretation. It's also the one bit of lab work where having a solid understanding of how to do some of the testing in-house can make a big difference to the reliability of your results, which is why this is such an important episode. Now, I know you've had some arguments or at least a heated debate at some point of your career about at least a few of the questions we answer in this episode, like fridge versus non-fridge. How old is too old for a urine sample? How long after starting antibiotics can you still culture? Is it worth culturing a free flow sample? Can you trust your dipsticks? Can I trust AI? Well, that's maybe a broader philosophical question, but we mean specifically in the context of urinalysis. I also suspect that you'll learn a few things that you didn't even know you should know. So... Take that pot of pee out of your pocket, sit back, and enjoy. Dr. Kristen Todd-Hunter. Kristen, welcome to the VetWell. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Let's talk about pee. We have, we have a rule in our hospital that I think I walk around with the whip whipping the vets at, uh, and that's with every biochem needs a urinalysis. So we started at the, the very, very basics. 
get your urine and we start with a dipstick. Dipstick, first of all, I never know how much to trust them. We, we were taught, because we all use the human dipsticks, and we were taught that mm. most of it you should take with a grain of salt because it's made for humans and some of the results don't translate well to animals. Has that changed? You jumped ahead a little bit. Oh. How you get it and the circumstances that you're getting it from. I mean, evaluating a urine that you get out of a kitty litter train versus a, a urine that you've done by cystoencentesis can make a difference. As well as how soon was it processed? Did the owner collect it at home? Did you collect it in the clinic and you're doing it straight away? Those kind of things can actually affect the dipstick. So if the owner drops it in and it's been refrigerated, it needs to warm up. Otherwise you can get false results on the dipstick. So I don't think much has changed for dipsticks, except as you're probably aware, there's now automated dipstick reefs. So you don't have to decide what color that pH is, but the accuracy of those, is that any better than the human eye? There's some controversy about that if you're trying to make things quicker you can just automate things then you know doing the dipstick with those automated readers can be helpful but whereas with every test that you do you need to know what the pros and cons are what what they actually mean in the circumstances that you collect them so with the dipstick most people tend to look at the ph quite commonly glucose blood the things that you shouldn't pay attention to would be things like the leukocytes, because that tests just one part of the leukocytes still. Um, ketones, you, you can look at those and, and protein, but again, collection method can play a role in what you get. So, you know, are you doing ketones in an absolutely normal dog? What do you do if it's positive? Mm-hmm. How do you interpret that? It's a normal dog. There's no glucose and you've got positive ketones. So knowing what can affect each test is as important as doing the test, I guess, to some extent. And if you go back with the glucose, you know, reading that, it needs to be, is the glucose going to be positive because that cat is absolutely freaked out in the exam room? Or a nice benign basset hound that you've gotten urine from that's got a three plus glucose. And also, as you say, with the biochem, interpreting it in context with the biochem. Mm. I can't you how many times I look at urine and really the urine specific gravity is quite important certainly interpreting azotemia just looking at a biochem if the only thing you can get is a urine specific gravity it might make a difference in understanding some of those blood work results oh I totally 100% agree there and sometimes Mm. urine has the answer like there's a fever unknown origin and then you get you know what's the missing link or what's the missing test or which one have you done urine because yeah. dog and wee or because I don't like doing cystos or something like that and and then there you go you get some pyuria or something like that like sometimes the urine can be the key I think yeah exactly but mm-hmm. in a female dog that you've got avoided sample from is completely different from pyuria in a dog you've done a cysto on mm. so where are we going to take this we're going to go back to a bit of sampling things or well I think there's some situations where that chihuahua is going to bite your hand off and it pees on the table yeah. Can you use that urine? I use it for USG. <laughs> yeah. Or you can use the urine, but as you say, with a grain of salt, you know, your interpretation is different. And if you can do an ultrasound guided cysto, mm. absolutely fantastic. 
Obviously, most of the guidelines for testing recommend a system for most things, but there are situations as we all encounter where it's just not possible. You said just then like voided samples, and then you, you mentioned there uh, for females and if they have, you see bacteria there, then, you know, it doesn't, you know, you know, rule in a UTI basically, like, you know, it doesn't mm. mean that there's an infection higher up. That was my interpretation of that. But what other things with voided samples should you be wary of? Well, obviously with voided samples, things that pass through the distal urinary tract can create contamination, protein, blood, any of those things where you might have contamination from the urethra, the mucous membranes of the penis or the vagina. There's a lot of lovely flora that live in those areas that we Mm -hmm. consider pathogens that may not necessarily be pathogenic. And, you know, there are cases where you have people who monitor bladder infections with voided samples. They have pyuria and they have a multi-drug resistant pseudomonas. Mm. However, when they've done a cysto, they've got no pyuria and no bacteria. So it's really quite important to understand what's the normal flora of the prepuce and the vagina. Just because you get it in pure growth doesn't necessarily mean it's something. It means that is a very dominant bacteria, you know? Mm. Especially, okay, I'm sure everyone can visualize a prepuce of a dog with the discharge that comes out of that, and then you get a urine sample. Yeah, that ain't sterile. That, that, that. <laughs> no, but you could you could alleviate some things by cleaning it before you get that wee. Same with the vagina. I mean, humans don't, on a routine basis, don't get sterile uh, cystocentesis from patients. So there are things you could do to minimize it by cleaning those areas and, you know, pulling back the prepuce when you get a sample, avoided sample, or parting the vulva to some extent or cleaning that area prior to urination. That might give you less chance of contamination. Mm. Okay, People yeah. often ask, should I culture it? Should I culture voided urine? Sure, you can culture it, but it always needs to be interpreted in context with your clinical signs and how you collect it. Can I jump back a few steps? At the beginning, right at the beginning, you mentioned how long, how old is the sample? Mm. Has it been refrigerated, all that sort of stuff? Yeah. Did you say you need to warm it up before you look at it, if it, if it has been refrigerated? Sure do. So obviously oh. the, in the ideal world, you collect that sample by a cystocentesis, uh, you hand it to your nurse or you do it, or your intern, if you have one, and they go back and they run that urinalysis straight away. They do the dipstick, they spin it down, they make all the slides, they look for crystals, they look at the cytology, you know, all done within 10 minutes. Mm-hmm. That's not the reality of general practice. So you get the urine and you can leave it on the countertop, but keeping in mind that if you've got bacteria in there and you want to do a, a quantitative culture, that those bacteria will multiply because they love it. Mm-hmm. So you can get them doubling in numbers for every half hour it sits on the bench. If, however, and this is an important point, if you want to know any bacteria there, So qualitative, you just want to know what's there and what the sensitivity is, then you can leave it on the bench. The Mm. premise of that is, is that any fastidious organisms that don't like cold 
will not be stressed. But the other problem is, is that bacteria that might be dominant may overgrow anything else that's in there. So most people will put that, label it properly, of course, and put it in the fridge so that when they get to a quiet moment, they can get their lab tech or whoever to process that. So obviously doing the dipstick. And they really do recommend that you do those things quite quickly. But within, uh, ideally within two to six hours, it should okay. be processed. So if it's put in the fridge, however, you need to warm it up to room temperature because refrigeration can give you false positives on your dipstick. And it can also create crystals that weren't there when you collected it. So calcium oxalate and struvite crystals can precipitate in cold urine. So you warm it up, get a temperature before you do any testing on it. Just leave it out till it warms up or in a water bath. You're not going to microwave it for a <laughs> second. <laughs> uh, but I think the best way to do it is to warm it up to room temperature in a normal fashion. Uh, Depending on what you collect it in, you could put it in a pocket of your shirt or you could have someone slip it in just under their shirt and in your back pocket as long as you don't forget it. And that will warm it up quicker without shocking it. There's ways to do it, but probably not a water bath, not in the sink, and probably not in the microwave. <laughs> yeah. Okay, cool. Okay. I didn't know about that, the, the warming it. That's because a lot of it is, especially the ones that come from home that clients bring in, it'll be mm. refrigerated. And ideally, you want them to drop that urine off as soon as they possibly can. So you really don't want them to collect it that night, leave it in the fridge for 12 hours and get it to you in the morning. Because by the, end, the chaos of the morning, somebody's not going to process that till mm. lunchtime. That's an 18 hour old sample. Yeah. I suppose then also, if you get a morning voided sample, then you get. The, the patient's most concentrated urine as well. Ideally, yeah. So that might be helpful in terms of interpreting or evaluating the, the kidney function, I suppose. Yeah. Then the, the storage, we, we've touched on this with Brett on the, in the previous episode, but he said we should ask a microbiologist. Uh, so again, if I'm going to send it off for culture, I want to know if there's bacteria in there. And then I put it in the fridge, which I never understand why should it be in the fridge. I feel like... But it's, is that what you said before, because it's quantitative, because it's going to slow yeah. down excessive So growth. for some people, if they're trying to decide whether that bacteria is relevant, they'll want to know how many colony forming units were there. They want a qualitative, um, okay. they want to know so they can decide whether they're significant or not. Okay. I would say on the balance for most clinical practitioners, they want to know, is there anything there? because they suspect that this dog is or a cat is symptomatic. Um, the owner wants to treat it with something and they've got obvious, they've, they've done a urinalysis or you send it in for urinalysis and there's obviously pyuria and, you know, the things that you would say, this animal has a UTI. And then the most disappointing thing sometimes is to come back with a no growth, mm -hmm. but that happens. But when you come back with the growth, people want to know light growth, moderate growth, heavy growth, and pure culture or not. So if you're looking at something that you've been treating and you know there's something there and you just want to know any bugs, then you can leave it on the bench. Gotcha. But yeah. your interpretation needs to be, you know, sit on the bench for 12 hours. So keep that in the back of your mind. It just made my whole, like the whole decision-making process a bit harder for me. 
<laughs> just like, do I want well, to do I want to know what's in there real for real? Or do I want to know if there's anything in there? So I don't, yeah. It also depends on your clinical case. Is this mm. the first time you've ever had a UTI? Current mm. UTI? Is it associated with something else? Is this a diabetic or a hyper A dog that's got a UTI? So if, if, if you knew that, okay, so let's, let's say if you knew that there was bacteria there and you were treating for a while and you wanted to know whether or not things were getting better or not, then you'd use a refrigerated sample because it... Personally, I wouldn't. Okay. The reason is, is that you've given me just a completely different scenario. Sure, so you've, sure. Got a, you've got a patient that you're treating and you want to know, is it working? Correct? Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So if you want to know if it's working, maybe you those bacteria to triple because that means there's a single organism in there okay cool okay yeah and you have okay. a better chance of finding out if it's there and the sensitivity to it okay gotcha so we wouldn't agree. It, if you're on a fishing expedition yeah and you're just doing a urinalysis as part of a, of a complete workup yeah your urinalysis is fairly okay and it comes back with an enterococcus that's a whole different situation where you've got an animal who's possibly not symptomatic and you've got bacteria yeah subclinical bacteria so mm. there's a whole set of guidelines that have been published in 2019 by an infectious disease group on utis it is brilliant it's a good read and it's good to just refer to it has a list of all of the antibiotics and how to interpret your sensitivities and mic levels and stuff like that huh. they get really good levels in the urine things that get better levels in the prostate it's quite a good reference article to have when it comes to you know simple utis versus recurrent versus prostatitis versus pyelonephritis versus you know those situations that we often encounter yeah would we get a link to that somehow or, or... yes i've got it on those notes and i'll send it to you it's the uh, international society for companion animal infectious disease guidelines awesome I'll put that in show notes for sure. Yeah. And it lists all of the antibiotics that we give sensitivity levels to that people, you know, as you probably are well known in clinical practice, we're coming across multi-drug resistant bacteria mm. all of the time. And so it gives you a nice little rundown of all of these types of things as they apply to the urinary tract. Cool. That sounds awesome. Now, I feel like we're talking about culture. We sort of strayed into well, the culture. Well, it's we might, my area. I know. <laughs> uh, we, 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 we may have to backtrack back to the, the in-house analysis, but let's ask questions about culture then. How long after starting an antibiotic does culture become affected by it? So let's say, let's say an animal has a, for some reason, has a jab of Clavilox in hospital, and then, you, and then late, an hour or two later you go, oh, shit, I should actually be doing urine culture. Yeah, not that quick. Not, Not that quick. 24 hours, maybe. Oh, okay, cool. At times. Okay, cool. Before you gave the jab, what the drug is and what the situation is. So if you are able to take the sample after the animals started on antibiotics or you've I don't know, sedated it for something else and you've given it antibiotics and now you can take all your samples, that that's fine. If you've got an animal that's, you know, you're worried about systemic disease or pyelonephritis, then you'll be taking blood cultures and cysto and doing all sorts of stuff like that and giving antibiotics at the same time or prior to that. Who knows? So you've got about 12 to 24 hours leeway on that. 
But the other thing is, is that if the bacteria that you culture ultimately is, is or isn't sensitive to that antibiotic, that will also tell you something as well. So if you've given the antibiotic, it's sensitive to it, but it's still growing. That means maybe you should continue that particular antibiotic for the appropriate amount of time before you determine it's not working or whatever, because you only gave, you gave the antibiotic 12 hours, but you've taken the urine. So you may not have killed everything. Does that IV and subcut, it doesn't matter. Like it depends on the antibiotic. Mm. And how, it depends on the levels that they get in the urine and uh, how quickly they reach those. So it might reach therapeutic levels in the urine within, you know, two to five hours. Does that necessarily mean it's actually going to get to the bacteria that's in the urine? Are you going to kill off all of them? This, this is a really good conversation because this is like a conundrum that we have. That's kind of like, we need all the samples before we give IVs, but then the dog's looking like it's dying of sepsis, you know, and then kind of like every hour that you delay giving antibiotics, the more likely the patient's going to die. So, yeah. Yeah, don't. Mm. Don't. And if something grows, then you'll know maybe that's something else in there that you aren't treating with that antibiotic. It's quite a good scenario that, you know, some people recommend culturing while you're under treatment to see how it's going. And what happens when you get a couple of different results? What, what should you assume from those results while they're on antibacterial treatment? I think I was taught like, so before and then start, then maybe adjust when you get your results. And then it's like every... Uh, gosh, it was at two weeks and then, then two weeks after you get a negative or something like that. Like that's the top of my head. Yeah, I guess that would be in a really just a simple, uncomplicated UTI and you've got resolution. Do you need to follow up and keep going? Maybe not. Maybe you don't need to do that two weeks, six weeks. You know, if you've got a recurrent infection, that's, that's a whole different ball game as far as what you're doing, because generally after two weeks, sometimes as early as five days, you get a recurrence of the symptoms. And frustratingly, you're growing the same bug with the same sensitivity pattern that you should have gotten the first time. And usually when you get that sort of situation, maybe something else going on, or you're not getting through to that biofilm, which is really what people need to start considering that B word in a lot of bacterial infections, no matter the area, often bacteria make these biofilms that are quite protective and you can get mixed organisms in these biofilms, incredibly frustrating, like the ear. So urine, the most difficult biofilm to try and penetrate through is the E. coli, which it's the number one bacteria isolated from urine cultures. And these E. coli can make not only extracellular biofilms on the surface of the bladder, but also intracellular biofilms within the cells. So they've got multiple layers of protection that you're going to have to try to figure out if this is the case. And often if you have multiple UTIs within a short time of each other and it's an E. coli, that's probably what you need to start thinking about. Now, there's a lot of research out there. All of the current research these days, especially for humans, is what can we do to dissipate or get through that biofilm without actually hurting the mucous membrane, the mucous layer of the GI system of the bladder? What can make the antibiotics that we use more effective in getting through those biofilms and actually becoming more effective in eliminating the infections? And that's a problem in the bladder. 
So, so just to be clear, the biofilm's not just around the bacteria. They they sit on the bladder wall and actually cover themselves with a the film, yeah. with a mucus to say, well, they, so the antibiotic can't even get near them because it can't get through the biofilm. That's right. So, what's the answer? Oh, I was about to say, is there, <laughs> go in there. Well, it depends on the bacteria. There's no one answer for one every situation. And it just depends on the bacteria. And the mm. more distant the bacteria, probably the less biofilm. So the more susceptible your bacteria is, especially E. coli, the more likely it is to be a biofilm producer. Really? So your, your results oh. say, yeah, yeah, I'm easy to kill. You'll, no, Haven't you worry. gotten those before? Susceptible to everything. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's what the dog was on. And then as yeah, it yeah. goes off, it's back again. Back again. So, so the bacteria says, yeah, don't worry, you, you can kill me. Throw those drugs at me, I'm fine. And then it says, you're not going to touch it. And, and, and <laughs> you've you ruled out your underlying causes like Cushing's or diabetes or whatever, or some kind of immunosuppressive Obesity. disease. And then, yeah, and then you've got these little bastards with biofilms. Now, I still want to know, what do you do then? <laughs> There's a lot of things out there that can help. So you have certain antibiotics that are very good at penetrating biofilms. So... Um, Beta-lactams aren't, penicillins aren't, but they're actually a really good drug for certain types of bacteria like enterococca. But they just don't penetrate biofilms as well as, say, fluoroquinolones, who go right to the problem. But we don't want everybody pulling mm -hmm. out the loans right out of their pocket, do we? They may not need it. So it needs to be reserved for the situations that are chronic and problematic and symptomatic. So... If you've got that situation with a biofilm, there are some things like a pseudomonas where you can use two medications, two antibiotics together, one to sort of dissipate the biofilm and one to actually get through it and kill the bacteria. And there's a lot of research on that in humans for these multidrug resistant bacteria. And but in the matter, you can imagine how hard it is to get a pseudomonas. I think I would rather tackle that though than one of these E. coli that are so sensitive and living intracellularly and just keep recurrently happening. Wow. So, so this information is part of that guide or in, in the guide? About the Some of it is, yeah. yeah. Some of it is. But these are guides and not, you know, rules. Mm. So they can't say, okay, specifically in this mm. case, this bacteria with this circumstance, this is how you treat it. That's why you develop a relationship with uh, an internal medicine specialist or a microbiologist or someone who can, you say to them, I've got this case, this situation, what do you think? This is where you phone your pathologist. <laughs> the the, the um, question I always have with these uh, like consensus statements, which come out with kind of this antibiotic for this particular thing. And, and mm. you know, like the, it's, research like you know microbiologists from around the world or something like that is there regional differences or can you take one of those consensus statements and then go yeah that applies to us or is there big differences between us and australia with those well, yeah there there are differences there are certainly differences between the us and australia and certainly differences even in how uh, you get reactions to drugs from US and Australia. But what's really good about this consensus statement that I was speaking about is it actually recommends that you as an individual practitioner in your hospital, come up with your own antibiogram to figure out what's happening in your area. So to have an example is what I mean is, is that 
Just take all the urines that you do by cystocentesis and send off for culture. Whatever you got back, E. coli, enterococcus, whatever, just collate that information into how sensitive they were. And then what you can see is, is that, wow, 60% of the E. coli's that I get back are actually sensitive to penicillin or amoxicillin. And that's your first line. I'd say, oh, none of them are sensitive to amoxicillin, but all of them have been sensitive to clavulox. So mm -hmm. what drug are you going to pick first on that first time? Mm. And if you do in-house urinalysis and you do see rods or cocci, even if you go that basic, which one are you going to pull out? If it's rods, then your chances are 60% that it's going to be an E. coli. Mm. Yeah. Cocci, then it could be an enterococcus or a staph. So knowing what you've gotten in your historical, in your area, that doesn't mean you don't do culture. That just means that when you have to put the animal on something first before you get that culture back, or if it's the first time, you know what you can pull out that have the best chance of working. And that is strictly for your hospital in your area. Mm. I tell you, regionally, we've looked at things in Victoria versus things in Sydney. And in one group, in one area, the E. coli were fairly sensitive to amoxicillin. So that'll be the first thing you pull out but they were not sensitive to amoxicillin in another. It was clavulox. That's really interesting. I didn't think that the biomes would be that regional. So No, but the, I guess it's about what they've been treated with before, what their humans have been treated with before. There's a lot of things that come into play in your area. If you have a low socioeconomic group where there's not a lot of preventative medicine, and you know that happens or if you have a rural area it can make a difference or if you're a clinic that's been there for a long time probably the local bio is, is created is, by you it's partially created by you <laughs> over the last couple of decades yeah, yeah definitely <laughs> or at least inf influenced um what about the ones you mentioned earlier where you do your in-house urinalysis and you see pyuria and then you send it off and then you get back up nothing nothing grew what does that mean? Why does that happen? Is that something I did wrong in the clinic? Well, there's a couple of different reasons. So if you've done your analysis and you then you do your sediment, so you do a wet prep mm -hmm. and ideally you've done your one stain with methylene blue and the other no stain at all, drop your condenser down and see what you see. Sometimes people misinterpret what they see as bacteria. So the other recommendation is, is to make a dry prep of that sediment as well. Now, the reason this can be incredibly helpful is once you make that, you have frozen everything in time. So if you need to send that to the lab to have someone else review it, you can. But yeah. the best thing is, is that what you might not exactly recognize as cockeye, and it looks like Brownian movement or whatever you might think you see under the microscope with the wet prep, if you stain it with a dip quick, then you might definitely see that that's cockeye. I can't miss that. That's yeast, that's rods. So when you use your sediment, my recommendation is to use four drops. You can use four slides. You can use one for the wet prep with the little cover slips and do one stain, one unstain, mm -hmm. and then two dry ones mm. where you can put them on the slide and you can just sort of slide them together to make two mm -hmm. or you can do two separate ones, but they need to be smeared out gently. Air dry them 
and then stain one to look yourself and keep one unstained in case you want to do a gram stain or send it to the lab for a second opinion. So it's a really quick thing. You've got the sediment made. You might as well just do it. Mm -hmm. What you might mistake as cocci might not necessarily be that. And mm -hmm. then the other problem is, is that you can get anaerobic cocci that don't grow well in aerobic conditions uh, okay. of, of being shipped to the lab. Oh, in a container with air and stuff like that and stuff. Exactly. So that can happen too. And that, or. That's what happens with all my samples probably. They could die. <laughs> so as you say, they're very sensitive and so they're not growing. So, you, so just going back, brownium movement, that's that little, when you're looking down the microscope, it's like yeah. little buzzy thing. Yeah, yeah. Okay. But keep in mind though, unless you're trained to do it, unless you train another nurse or technician mm. who does it all the time, mm. some people aren't going to really know what they're looking at. And so they're just going to think any round things under the scope are caca. It must be bacteria. Yeah. Any, any tips there? Because that can be challenging. I, I feel like I'm... You know, I've been looking at urine for 20 years and we spent a lot of time at our uni looking at. Yeah. I, I, but I still sometimes struggle. Sometimes you still look at them and go, are you a bacteria or are you, are you just. And how gunk? often do you change your stain? So what you might see is, oh God, it's full of whatever, but you haven't changed that stain in, you know, a month or more. Yeah. So how do you know that's mm. real? So it's a matter of evaluating your own lab practices as well. Methylene blue, um, what does it do? Does it add contrast, highlights? Well, it does stain some things uh, so that you can see. And I think what you would say, it gives it contrast. But if you don't have it, you don't need it as long as you drop the condenser on your microscope. Yes. So that gives you the most contrast, really, so you can pick out things. And if you can use methylene blue, that's fine. What they're hoping is it might stain some of the bacteria. Lipid obviously won't take up stain because it would be hydrophobic. Um, mm -hmm. So it might help differentiate some of those things that might be a little bit, you know, if you're not great at, at identifying maybe what some small leukocytes look like versus a red cell and things like that. It might give you some degree of detail that differentiates between things under the microscope, but you don't have to have it. Mm but it, it can help. It's great to look at them side by side. That's why putting one drop under a cover without stain and one with stain could be helpful. And you're looking at the, the times 40 or the times 100 or? Always need to scan first at 4X because you want to look for casts. Doing a urinalysis in-house during your own cytology is the best chance of looking for a cast. Mm. You know, in transit, they'll break up, they'll fall apart. Um, casts aren't common, uh, but you, you, you'd you be the best one to look at it. And also just picking up crystals. It's hard to know whether that's real when they're in transit, refrigerated, everything else, because like I said, crystals can precipitate, they form, mm. they dissolve. So looking at looking for crystals right out of the animal is the best. And just to clarify, why not just go straight to DiffQuick? Why do we have to look at the unstained or the plus or minus the um, the methylene blue? What's the advantage? Well, you can, those? but then again, also DiffQuick can distort things as well. And DiffQuick are going to be better for cellular elements, uh, especially if you're concerned about neoplasia or dysplasia or something like that. It's going to be better for the things that we would normally look at, not necessarily crystals or 
it might alter some of the aspects of the urine that you know probably you might misinterpret so okay you can do that but again more information is best the quickest way to evaluate it is going to be without the stain in the wet mount if you ask for cytology when you send it away all of those cells will fall apart in transit they just can't help it especially if they're bacteria there and it's probably really frustrating for people to send away a urinalysis for cytology and, and we just say, look, the cells are too degenerate. I'm sorry, I can't tell you anything. So if you make that sediment smear there, then mm. that's ideal. Otherwise, I recommend people actually send in an aliquot of the urine in EDTA in a purple top tube because bacteria don't grow in the presence of EDTA. It does preserve cells. When you send in peritoneal fluid or abdominal fluid, we always ask that you send it in a purple top tube so we can do a cell count and do appropriate cytology. But we don't culture from that because mm. EPTA will prevent bacterial growth rather than aid it. Wow, that's the first time I've ever heard of that. Now, here's another first too. Mm. If you want to know exactly, if you take a cysto and you're not concerned about quantitative numbers, put it in a blood culture bottle. Okay. That's a great media for enhancement. It works for both anaerobic and aerobic. And if anything's going to grow, it's going to grow in a blood culture bottle. So that's like, if there's a UTI there, if anything is there in there. You want to know if there's anything in there, because you won't be able to say, oh, it's really low numbers because you've enhanced it. So there'll be times when I'm, and I'll, we'll ask for enhancement because, you know, uh, it's a situation where there is going to be bacteria there and we just got to make sure we just got to make sure there's none so so let's recap if i'm hunting bacteria then as you say consider a culture bottle don't just don't necessarily put it in the fridge and send it off to you guys if i'm concerned about cells so, so if there's cytology if i see something and i go what the hell is that then consider sending a sample in edta and make a fresh smear and send your smear along with the sample. Yep. Does that yep. make sense? Or ideally, if you don't have enough urine, because, you know, we don't get huge pots of it, mm -hmm. um, just send the smear. Yeah. Okay. Mm. I, really I'm a big fan of blow drying things because of an emergency. I'm like, I can't wait for it. How much like, does that kill things uh, with the urine? What does it, it do? Can, it can certainly alter things. I mean, what does it do to your hair when you're blowing it dry? It makes it gorgeous. <laughs> <laughs> Keep in mind that, you know, you're blow drying it. So you're putting that heat really close to cells. It's not a gradual thing. You're like fry. And so it can distort things. It can be really quite annoying. If you're that, if you're that impatient, get a slide warmer and just put it on there. And that will gradually warm it up. I, I've seen people put them on top of coffee machines. Um. Yeah. <laughs> Anything that has a little bit of warmth to it will speed it up without hurting it. Uh, if you have an Apple Watch and you're monitoring your, your movement or any of the go with your watch hand because that adds a heap your of steps. points to your, you <laughs> your watch thing. You wear steps. I did you're running around. Like, <laughs> There's my tip for the day. Yeah. <laughs> is there anything more there? Because this is, I've learned a lot from, I almost feel like we could just wrap it up. Well, you did want to know about the AI machines, didn't you? Yes, that's the next question. Are they, that's it. Is there, is there evidence? I'm old school. Again, I love looking at my own stuff. And then this machine arrived at my old job. I was like, I don't trust this thing to give me results. Are they, what are they like? Do we know? 
Well, there have been debates on them. There's been discussions in groups versus these AI machines and the pros and the cons and things like that. And if you're very time poor, again, it's just like doing your own samples. You've got to know what the circumstances are and what their drawbacks and everything else. So with these machines, if you think about what you do in the clinic, basically now you need dipstick, slides, stain, maybe that's it. These machines, there's going to be consumables. On the other hand, you can train anybody to do it. You know, you can train somebody to set it up, but in the end, both of them require a degree of knowledge about things because they will show you photos of the sediment, depending on what you do. And you need to judge whether that's right or not. There's papers out there that talk about it. Is it good for, is it good for casts? Well, you know, do you really see that many? Is that what you're interested mm. in? Or are you really just interested in the crystals and the oh. sediment? Yeah. So yeah, there's some degree of, uh, if it's negative, then that that's all. You can be comfortable that it's negative. But if it's positive, you might get false positives and things like that for crystals. Most of them only look for the two main crystals, which are calcium oxalate and struvite crystals. Okay. Most for casts and either they're hyaline casts or non-hyaline casts. Oh, wow. They're not giving you the amount of detail. If that's what you want, you can hand a, a nice report to the owner with pretty pictures on it. And that might go towards your marketing. It just depends on what you want out of your machines. But it's about time. I'd be the kind of guy that if I saw something on the sediment images, I go get the slide and I go and look at it myself. It's like, yeah. like on the hematology machine, it says these kind of things. I want to see it myself. So do, 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 like, I don't know if I'd and ever. So read. you should. So yeah, we're, it, they both work to some degree and they make a difference for people who are only interested in ruling out the common things, which is what they're made for. Mm, but yeah. there is a degree of, Sometimes they miss the uncommon things and that's actually the key to the diagnosis. So you need to always look at the, at the photos of the sediment. And, okay. you know, if you want to look at 70 photos, and... that would be me. <laughs> would it be like a good, like, if you see a clear, if the machine gets a clear, then it's a clear, as opposed to if the yeah. machine gets a, a positive, then I would still go do the sediment, but it could be like a, a rule out, like you put it through the machine, machine gets all clear, it doesn't see anything, then you kind of know no sediment. Like it's a very sensitive test. Yeah, it's very specific. It's, it's very specific. not as okay. So, yeah, and I always have to look up the meaning of those. But mm. yes, if it's negative, you can be comfortable in it that it's negative. If it's positive, then mm, that could know. that could save a lot of time actually. Should we dig into casts for a little bit? Because I'm a like a big cast kind of dude in a sense that like once you know what they look like, in a way, then you kind of see them. But some people don't. Yeah. So like for me, they're like it, a tubulous, like you shouldn't have a tubulous things, like shaped things in there. And if you shake up your sample too much, you get, it all gets broken up. But once I saw a cast once, then I knew then that's what a cast looked like. It's like it, boom. I, I can see them now. So but what kind of microscope? So you got a times four, times 10, and then you got the times 40, times 100. Four, times 10, four. 40, mm. 100, yeah. And so you can, ideally, you want to scan the whole sample under four 
and you want to look for things. If it's a voided sample, you've got to be cautious because you can get foreign debris that can mimic casts. But what's really good is to have some really nice posters which are out there on the wall at the microscope so that when you're scanning at 4x and you look up and you go, oh yeah, okay. And generally, if you have to ask, is this a cast? It's probably not. They stick out at you because once you see them, as you said, you know, oh, that's a cast. Oh, that's a leukocyte cast. Yeah, that's cool. You know, that's why having the methylene blue as well can help bring that contrast to it. But it's really helpful, especially if you're not looking at huge numbers, to have those on the wall next to the microscope or available, ideally so you don't have to page through pages, but so that you can remember what each individual type of cast looks like. So that when you do come across it or your technician or your nurse or whoever, then they don't have to spend time looking it up. They can just look at that and go, oh no, no, that's too irregular. That's too small. And then they're worried, then they can come and signal to you and say, hey, can you just come look at this? I'm just a little bit worried. It's a cast. And, And that's a great collaboration because then you can both agree or disagree on it. So it's the same thing with a lot of epithelial cells or anything like that, where you're looking at them and having those reference pictures, people remember pictures, they remember pictures in color and things like that a lot better. My take with cars from my understanding of them is like, okay, it's fine if you've got white cells, right? And they're big, like basically tubular structures full of bacteria and white cells, right? Like something like a pile of fried or something. But if you've got like some kind of kidney damage and the epithelial cells of the of the tubules or something are starting to slough off. Like mm-hmm. my thought was it was a, a spectrum. Like the more cellular they are, the more acute the injury is and the more clearer it gets, the more chronic it has. Is, is, it, is there some kind of relationship like that or not really? Not really that I could find. And certainly people who look at a lot of, uh, I would say some of a urology specialist would probably have a, a Point of view on that mm. i think that most people are just lucky to find the casts to, to decide whether or not your kidney damage is acute or chronic and in context with biochemistry and acute phase proteins and things like that you're probably going to have an index of suspicion that whether it's acute or chronic anyway severe so as a team here and you look on the microscope and there's casts everywhere and you're like "Ooh, this is a nasty one at least it kind of, yeah. for me, it means there's kidney involvement if we've got mm. casts. Absolutely. So you should, you should see most casts at times four, and then you can zoom in to kind of see what they're made of. But casts, generally tubular structures, shape of a, of a tubule in a sense. Yeah. Well, sometimes they can have, they definitely a tubule structure, but they can have a tapered end at times. So I guess some people might look at them in, in that context as... Uh, parasites or you know broken off bits of something like I said it's a really good idea to have photos or some sort of reference material when you're looking at them especially if you don't see them very often yeah I've looked at a lot of urine psychology and I've never seen a cast except in a wet prep in a clinical practice so that's one of the good points about doing it in-house is that you're going to see more casts than I do yeah okay Let's start wrapping up. One very simple, very very practical question. I asked about how long between starting antibiotics does it start affecting your culture. Same with the SG. We haven't even really touched on SG. 
very often you yeah. have these cases and they come in and they're on fluids because the bladder is empty and you can't get your sample until later. Yeah. How much can I trust what my SG says once the animal's on fluids? Is it as soon as I put it on a drip, don't trust the SG anymore because the urine that's produced. From I wouldn't say no, as, not as soon as you put it on fluids, but if you can think about in your treatment history, how long does mm. it take for an animal on fluids to pee? Mm. So it kind of depends on the volume, the boluses, how sick it is. Yeah, I, I still that. Have urine from dogs who they've been on fluids for six, seven hours because if they have an azotemia and then they have concentrated urine still or like something like 1030, then and they've been on fluids and I've I've given a couple boluses, then I know that urine was concentrated to begin with. Yeah. And exactly. It's, yeah. It's a matter of being in context. I mean, and you can most of the time when they give you reference intervals for urine-specific gravity, they are assuming that it's without any fluid therapy or diuretics. Okay. So that's really going to be a clinical call. And I would say that as soon as you could get urine, you should. And these days you can, what, almost scan it with your phone with an ultrasound. <laughs> Just, you know, as soon as you can is great. But okay. always that interpretation will have to be in context to the clinical situation. Yeah. Magnificent, Kristen, your religion. Thank you. That was really interesting. Thank you so much. Every time we do these, I, I, I think, oh, I wonder what I'm going to learn. But uh, every time I learn so much. I like the, the cells in the EDTA. Some levels really good. And then like that, and then the differences between refrigerating and not refrigerating. I think that was pretty good too. So your colleagues are going to see you walking around with tubes of urine in your pockets? I uh, generally, actually, there's, there's syringes of urine against my ear. That's where I warm them up. You don't have enough hair to keep it warm. <laughs> the worst is when you get home and your scrubs and you underpack your, you get your keys out and you go, oh, why is there a tube of piss in my pocket? Yeah. Ah. <laughs>